Hello and welcome to the Three Worlds Podcast Series 2, Episode 3. Last time talked a little bit about safety and safety in the real world, the uh, things to look out for when you're perhaps going, meeting a teacher, going on a workshop, that kind of thing. But I'm going to bring it a lot more back into shamanism this time, and I really would like to talk about the spirits. So I'm talking about kind of uh, spirit safety. So fasten your seatbelts. Off we go. Spirits. They're part and parcel with shamanism. Can't really have shamanism without spirits. Well, can't have it at all. Full stop. Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And uh, next time, <laughs> no, I think there's a bit more to be said than that. So we'll carry on. All right. So in core shamanism, the spirits tend to be spirit animals. That's that's what's become popular. That's what's kind of been taught in the West. Came from Hana. I'm not 100% certain where he got it from. I know he worked a lot with the South American traditions from Amazonia. And I'll be honest, that's not really a tradition I know a vast amount about because it's not a tradition that I work within. So I'm kind of presuming that Hana picked up, learnt, developed those ideas because of his contact with the Amazonian shamans. However, in other traditions, such as Mongolia, Siberia, Central Asia, etc., they don't really have spirit animals as spirit helpers, which the shamans work with. They tend much more to be ancestral spirits. And these are generally the spirits of former shamans, um, cultural heroes, clan chiefs, Generally, it tends to be former shamans, but it doesn't absolutely have to be. Sometimes it can be the spirits of mountains or other aspects of nature. So let's talk about core shamanism for a while and talk about spirit animals. Now, in the classic core shamanism tradition, which is a developing tradition, okay, it's not that old, 50 years or whatever, but it is a developing tradition in the West. It goes that when you first learn to do shamanic journeying, you go on what's often called a power animal journey, and you go down to the lower world, and you meet a spirit in the form of an animal that you see several times, and then you kind of ask it if it wants to be your helper and it says yes or no, but hopefully it says yes. And in which case you kind of ask it to come back with you. And very often you might physically hold on to it and bring it back. And then the person who drummed for you blows it into you. That's, that's the way it's done. That's the way it's done very much in the West. And, and that's the core shamanic tradition. I got no real problem with that. I think that it can proved to be quite an effective way of working. It's not the same as traditional shamanism, and I'll get onto that in a little while, but I don't really see the problem with that. I know myself from my own experiences. I started working with core shamanism. My core shamanic teacher was Jonathan Horvitz, and uh, he's a, a most excellent teacher, and that's the way that I learned to do it. So I trotted down to the lower world, brought back spirits, had them blown into me. And I've been working with those spirits now for many decades. And 
those spirits morph, they change slightly. Sometimes they will, well, for instance, I worked a lot with Coyote for many years, which was a difficult teacher. I've got to say that it's a difficult teacher. And um, one day Coyote kind of introduced me to Bear and said, you're apprentice to Bear now. So Bear is one of my still surviving core shamanic spirit animals. And I work with those spirits in that kind of way. And they've they've kind of come with me as I've moved more and more away from core shamanism. But they're still there. Do I think that they are the spirits of animals? No, I don't. I think that they are spirits who manifest in animal shape. And also, do I think that they are a part of my subpersonality and inside me? No, I don't. I used to think that years ago, before I got involved in shamanism, I trained as a psychotherapist. So I was quite psychologically based to start with. And I kind of sat on the fence for at least 15 years, in the first 15 years of my shamanic kind of training, as it were, um, which was very core shamanic and also a mix of Native American traditions. Quite new age, really, in many ways. Um, but shh, don't tell anybody that, please. Um, so I sat on the fence very much with that and thought, well, yeah, they're probably inside me. And then I really had to come to the conclusion that actually my spirit helpers are absolutely external to me. And now I don't have any problem with that at all, because it's just not logical that they are part of my personality. That is such a Western dead matter thinking kind of mechanistic view of the world. And it doesn't fit with it doesn't sit comfortably with at all the traditional view of shamanism. And I just eventually I just had to throw that out. So for me, I still have those spirit animals around. I also have spirits that are in more kind of human form, for want of a better way of putting it. But the spirit animals that I have, um, I've really got two main ones and then two, two kind of secondary ones. And they are still there. They're still in animal form. And they are kind of main teachers. Those, those two big ones, those two primary ones are my main teachers. I go to them to talk about clients. I go to them to talk about any process work that I need to do. If I've got questions about anything, if I'm talking about ritual objects or whatever, they tend to be my teachers or they take me to other spirits that teach me about those things. So sometimes I come across people that ask, is it safe? Is it safe to go on a shamanic journey workshop or just start to do that kind of thing? And um, yeah, basically it is. It's like I talked about last time. It's pretty safe walking on the beach. It's not 100% safe, but it's pretty safe. You could probably spend hundreds of lifetimes walking on beaches and not get hit by a big wave. So yes, it's safe. If you've got a good teacher, especially if you've got a good teacher and they're teaching you good, safe ways of journeying and you are going down to the spirit world and meeting a spirit that wants to work with you, one of my teachers always used to talk about asking for spirits who love you. And I think that's really a good, good thing to put into your head. Not everything out there loves you. 
So you put that literally as a phrase because it acts as a filter. If you put the phrase, I'm asking for a spirit who loves me, then you're specifically saying to the universe, this is a filter that I want the spirits to come through. The filter is they have to love you. And on one level, that might sound like superstition, but the, the universe, the world works on that kind of legalistic language. Magic is very, very legalistic. So you put a clause in there saying that it has to be a spirit that loves you, then the universe kind of has to follow suit on that to some degree. That is one of the major understandings of all magical traditions. So you've done a journey. You've got your spirit. The spirit has been brought back. It's been blown into you. Now the work starts where you are making friends, getting to know, building a relationship with that spirit. And that takes time. That takes years. That takes decades. That takes a lifetime. You are learning slowly, inch by inch, centimetre by centimetre, to trust that spirit helper. That spirit helper will be your teacher, will be your companion, will be the being that is your intermediary between you and the rest of the spirit world. And you have to trust them and you have to be proactive with them. You have to ask questions. You have to be a bothersome nuisance because if you're passive, if you just lie back and don't do anything but kind of only get what you're given, you're not going to be given very much. You really need to be proactive. You need to bother them. You need to ask questions. On a shamanic journey, we're kind of going off the topic a little bit, but I think it's a good thing to say. On a shamanic journey, I always say, for God's sake, it's not a movie. You don't watch it. It's more like you go shopping. You actually have to go and be proactive and go and talk to people and go in this door and out that door. And you are active. You are the boss. You are the director of the thing that you're going through. It is not a television program. It is not a movie. You do not lie down put your hands behind your head and enjoy the show. That is not what it's about. So if you've gone about getting the spirit in a good way and you've got a good teacher and you've not done stupid things like I'm journeying to meet a spirit that's going to make me really powerful, that's really not a good way to go and meet a spirit. You need to do something more like I'm journeying to go and meet a spirit that loves me, that wants to teach me what I need to learn at this time. That way it's more open. There's a, a bit of a kind of fallacy around, which I think developed from Victorian times when anthropologists were kind of first beginning to explore shamanism, um, that shamans fought the spirits and subdued them and kind of made them slaves, like uh, a bit like um, uh, Aladdin's lamp. You know, you captured the spirit, you shoved it into a container, you rub the container and then out pops the spirit. Oh, master, what can I do for you? Again, it's not like that. It's only very occasionally like that. I'm not going to say never because someone's going to email me and say, well, did you know? And yes, I know, especially amongst some of the Inuit shamanism, you actually do capture spirits in that way sometimes and you do master them and kind of break them in like a wild horse. But that is such a rare thing. And for all intents and purposes, it 
doesn't happen. And certainly it's not part of core shamanism. So you journey, you've got yourself a good spirit. You've got a spirit that wants to help you and you build up that trusting relationship with it. Now, again, like I said last time, some people sit in the car on the car park by the seaside and they look at the waves and other people dive off cliffs and swim and jump about and splash and go yards and yards and yards out into the water. So your shamanism is going to be depending on you. And you may be the sort of person that really dives deep or you may be the sort of person that really just tickles their toes in the breaking waves. That's fine. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not better or worse. It's what suits you and what the spirits have in store for you. So some of you listening to this, you are just going to poddle around in the shallows, splashing your toes, and that's absolutely fine. And if you do that, chances are you're really, really not going to get carried out to sea on a big wave. You're not going to meet spirits that are going to be difficult or dangerous or put you in risk in any way. You're absolutely safe. You're not 100% safe, but, you know, you're not 100% safe walking out in the back garden sometimes. You're safe. But some of you are going to want to dive deeper or swim deeper or wade deeper. And the deeper you go out, the more you put yourself at risk. You put yourself at risk because you're kind of raising a flag, as it were, and you're going to go and do work for people. That means that you're going to encounter spirits that are not going to love you because that, at the end of the day, is really what shamanism is about. The world is, like I say, full of beings that don't love you. So, OK, maybe you're going to get a client that has got a problem that is being caused by some form of spirit intrusion into their life and you will have learned enough hopefully before you start tackling these bigger more weighty things and you will have got a good relationship with your spirits and you trust your spirits and you do what your spirits say because that's part of trusting so you go out there and you meet this hostile spirit maybe it's the spirit of a disease and you have to know how to keep yourself safe in that place. It's like you don't go into a contaminated building if you're not wearing good protective clothing. And it's exactly the same in shamanism. Now, there's lots and lots of ways of putting on the protective clothing, literally in terms of wearing shamanic armor, shamanic costume. But again, that's a whole other thing. But if you're doing bigger work, then you're putting yourself out there and you will meet spirits from time to time that do potentially have the ability to cause you mischief. Now, there's all sorts of shamanic techniques that I could talk about here. Ways of working with spirits, ways of fighting spirits, ways of negotiating with spirits, ways of tricking spirits, which is all the sorts of things that a shamanic practitioner or a shaman has to do. But I think at this point, the main thing that I want to stress is don't try diving off the rocks into deep water if you can't swim. Don't think it's macho to go and do major work if you haven't been trained in it. Ask your spirits about everything if you're not sure. 
If you've got a piece of work that's being given to you, you know, your best mate is saying, help, help, my house is possessed. You don't just roll up your sleeves and dive in. You go talk to your spirits and you do a recce. You do a reconnaissance trip and you go and talk to them. I have tutorials. I go and talk to my spirits in what I call tutorials. And I sit around with them and I ask questions and they give me the answers. So you do that, you prepare for it and you do what your spirits tell you to do because that is the best way, A, for you to learn and B, for you to keep safe. So, okay, we've talked about the kind of basics, especially around core shamanism. So let's look at some of the things around traditional shamanism. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I think the biggest difference is that they tend not to have animal-shaped spirits. They don't have power animals. They, well, to use a Mongolian word, they have on-gods. On-god is the spirit of an ancestor shaman that comes into a shaman generally and takes them over. Now, these are normally the spirits of former shamans that have died. And what happens in the Mongolian traditions is that there are ceremonies done when a shaman dies and their spirit is bound to the earth so that they kind of don't reincarnate. And they are made into on-god spirits. So on-gods are kind of family ancestors. Shamanism very often in traditional cultures tends to be a family thing. If you have shaman ancestors, then you can be a shaman. It's blood and bone. If you've got the blood and bone, then chances are you're going to become a shaman too. And so an on-god is very often a blood relative from the distant past. It might be quite a distant relative. It might be like a clan ancestor, but it's going to be a spirit of a person that is physically related to you. Or it might be the spirit of an on-god that is kind of gifted to you. For instance, if you are training in a tradition and you are not necessarily of blood and bone to members of that tradition, there is still the on-god spirit of that tradition, of that lineage. And that is the spirit that may well come to you. Now, because these are ancestor spirits, they have a long history of having come to shamans. So shamans of the same clan, of the same family, of the same lineage will all know the on-gods because they will all have the same on-gods. They become a mouthpiece for these ancestor spirits. And so... Um, a particular spirit will be known, will be recognised when it comes to a shaman. The way of shamanic journeying is also slightly different, as the nature of the spirits are. In core shamanism, it's taught very much that you have a, a hole in the ground or a crack in a tree or something like that, which is your entrance to the lower world. And you kind of methodically go to that place in your mind's eye and go down it each time. And that is the formal structured way of doing it. In traditional shamanism, it isn't like that. In traditional shamanism, Yes, they do have the concept of the three worlds, the lower world, middle world and upper world very often. But the spirits tend to come for the shaman 
And well, the shaman calls them. It's well, it's kind of like a two way thing. The shaman calls the spirits and the spirits come to the shaman. It is controlled. You know, it's not it's not like the spirits just turn up unannounced. But the spirits come into the shaman and they take over the shaman. And then the shaman will talk to those spirits almost like they're kind of in the shaman's body with them. And they will also see things, journey, do that sort of work, just like kind of shamanic practitioners in many ways. But also the shaman, like I said right back in the first podcast of this series, the shaman will be taken over by those spirits and those spirits will act through the shaman using the shaman's voice, using the shaman's hands and they will give advice to members of the shaman's community or they will do healing for the members of the shaman's community. So this is quite a different way of working to the core shamanic way. And in a way, it's less controlled. It is very controlled, but it's controlled in a totally different way. The core shamanic way of working is quite mechanistic. The traditional shamanic way is well, you could look upon it as being fairly organic. It's part of the reason that shamans need human teachers. They need human teachers because the human teacher knows about the spirits. And, well, I always think that a, that a human teacher is a little bit like a marriage arranger, a marriage arranger that introduces the shaman to the spirits and then in a way, they step back and the spirits are the shaman's main teacher. But you do need that kind of introductory agency, which is the human teacher. And the human teacher will teach ways of etiquette. They will teach ways of courting the spirits, if you want to continue with that metaphor. And of course, this is really important. If somebody is of a kind of shamanic disposition and in a traditional culture, the spirits start coming into them. It could be that it's not the spirit that it's pretending to be. And the, the shaman to be may not actually be a shaman to be. They may actually be a sick person that is getting possessed by a harmful spirit pretending to be an on god. So this is always checked out by shamans with experience. They know what to look for. They understand what the spirit is likely to be, who it's likely to be, and they will test that spirit. They will make certain that the spirit that is coming to a neophyte shaman is actually who it's making out to be. This is part of what happens in shaman sickness very often. When a young person gets shaman sickness, which is kind of a strange psycho-spiritual, psycho-physical illness that happens often generally around adolescence, and it, it kind of foretells the possibility that this person is going to be a shaman. And so in a traditional culture, the, uh, the, the sick person will have a shaman called in ostensibly to heal the illness but if the shaman's kind of fairly wise and clued in on these things then they will suss out if it's a spirit invasion that's happening inside this client and they will make sure that it's um, either a hostile spirit that is just possessing or maybe it is a helper spirit an on god spirit that wants to help make this neophyte this young person actually then into a new shaman. 
If it's that latter, then the shaman that has come to help will often become that young person's teacher or they will pass that young person on to another teacher, depending on the circumstances. And the teacher, the kind of elder shaman, as it were, will teach the neophyte about how to deal with the spirits, how to control when the spirits come, how to call the spirits, what offerings are needed for those spirits, um, all the sorts of bits and pieces that are to do with actually learning how to do shamanic work, what ceremonies to do, we'll organise getting them a drum, we'll organise getting them their ritual costume, all of those actual nitty-gritty details. And of course, those teachers will prevent the student doing stupid things, the sorts of things that are going to get them into trouble because they dive off the rocks into deep water before they have learned how to swim. But sometimes waves come and sweep us away and sometimes we're walking on a nice cliff path and we slip and fall off. So if you get yourself into deep water, what do you do about it? If you get yourself into shamanic situations where you think that you're going to do something that's quite safe and straightforward and it turns out that you've bitten off a little bit more than you thought you could chew. Well, the first thing is don't panic. If you get yourself in a panic and you get yourself in a flap and you start getting scared and you start waving your arms about in the air and rushing to and fro, you're just going to make yourself worse because you're going to expend energy and you're going to become ungrounded. And if you do have a spirit around that is going to cause you problems, you need to be as grounded and as slow and as solid and as aware as you possibly can be. So that's the first thing. Like it says in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, don't panic. Second thing. Go talk to your spirits. Go ask your spirits. Ask your spirits for help. My teacher Jonathan always used to say, a shaman asks for help. And he's absolutely right. Your spirits are there as your biggest allies. So you ask for help. You ask them to protect you. You do all that they tell you to do. And you listen to them. In essence, that's all you need to do because your spirits are your teachers. And sometimes actually getting thrown in the deep end is a damn good way of learning how to swim. So being scared because you've bitten off more than you can chew and you've met a spirit that's a little bit hostile, it's probably not going to kill you and it's probably going to teach you a great deal. In a recent podcast, I talked about so one of my teachers years ago that was a sorcerer and I had a difficult experience with them and uh, got really ill. And yeah, on one level, on a kind of simplistic level, that was awful. And physically it was pretty awful. But boy, did I learn. That was a really good experience. I'm kind of a bit in favour of people not being safe. Because you don't learn if you're safe. You're cosy. And shamanism, as I've said many times, is not safe and it's not nice. So having a little bit of scare, having a little bit of risk, that's good. 
I remember years ago, my spirits actually did a whole load of work with me where they put me into really frightening experiences. Horrible, horrible journeys where I was meeting all sorts of nasty stuff. And I knew that I was in real risk on those journeys. I suspect the spirits would have kind of come in and rescued me if I'd really got into hot water. But it, they were terrifying. They were really scary journeys and uh, meeting all sorts of real nasties. And, and I had to control my fear. I had to control my panic reaction. Um, I've been in other situations like that, too. Uh, one of these podcasts, I'll tell you some, some stories of things that I've had happen. But at one point, I got caught in the periphery of a shaman war between some Mongolian shamans. And uh, I got kind of visited and checked out by some very hostile spirits. And I knew that I had to be 100% grounded because if I wasn't 100% grounded, it would cause a kind of chink in my armour. And that would be how I got got. So I absolutely had to be rock solid. And all of those things are kind of what tempers you. They are what makes you grow as practitioner so that eventually you get to be more and more confident. I wouldn't say cocky because that's dangerous because, yes, I might be able to dive a little bit, but that doesn't mean I can't drown. But at least I kind of know some of the manoeuvres when I'm diving. However... If you are still feeling out of depth and still feeling that you're in a difficult situation, you also ask humans to help because other humans that know about shamanism can journey for you. They can do work to protect you. There's a whole gamut of things that somebody more experienced than you can do for you. So it's really good to have real world shamanic buddies. We watch out for each other. We keep each other covered sometimes. I've got shaman friends that look after me when I'm going to do a big healing or a big piece of work, and they literally keep me covered. They call upon their spirits. They put protection around me. It's like they tie a rope to me when I'm going down the hole, and they are there as my backups, and that's invaluable. That's worth its weight in gold or even worth its weight in pizza. So... Thank you for listening to this podcast. A few details, contact things. If you want to contact me, my email is nick at sacredhoop.org. If you'd like to subscribe to Sacred Hoop magazine's special offer of uh, £14, which is about $17 uh, for eight issues, two years, go to sacredhoop.org forward slash offer dot html and my three worlds website which is the gallery of ritual objects and there's articles and things to read there too you can download that is three worlds.co.uk and that's the number three not the word three all right thank you very much for listening and i'll catch you next time bye bye